Hey, listeners, thanks for joining us on another episode of the Richard Haynes Real Estate Show. This time around, we've got a wonderful guest, Melanie Archer. She is an expert on multifamily apartment investing, both as a broker and syndicator. On this episode, we talk about the market in multifamily investing, the challenges it's going through, and the opportunities that exist. We discuss whether you should be buying in California or out of state, and we also talk about how you can get started in income property investing. It's an action-packed show, and we hope you enjoy. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Richard Haynes Real Estate Show. I'm your host, Richard Haynes of Manhattan Pacific Realty here in the South Bay area of greater Los Angeles where we cover real estate from Manhattan Beach to Palos Verdes and we have a special guest with us this episode. I'm very excited to introduce Melanie Archer. Melanie, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks, Richard. Thank you for having me. You're very welcome. We're thrilled so to fun. have you. Yeah. Thank you for joining us. I know people didn't hear us talking before this episode, but mm-hmm. we just went right into it. We, we love so real much estate. To, we love it. We go on for hours, hours. So this is exciting for both of us. Mm-hmm. Before we get started, I'm going to introduce you and then I would love for you to share anything more for us to know, Great. but I'm going to give you the standard podcast episode introduction. So everyone for who doesn't know Melanie Archer, Melanie is a real estate attorney and is the owner of Archer Investment and Consulting, Inc., a full-service real estate investment and consulting firm for commercial real estate portfolios. AIC handles all aspects of the commercial real estate transactions, including portfolio analysis acquisition, operations, management, and disposition. She attended UCLA for law school, but as a Trojan, I'd like to add that she did do her undergraduate at USC, fight on, and she currently lives in Palos Verdes with her husband and three boys, Melanie. Yes. That's you. That's me. It's so complicated when I hear about it that way. And people, I think, wonder, what in the world does that mean? And what's really cool is that over the last 12 years, I've been able to accumulate this incredible experience through this cross-section of real estate law, commercial law, and real estate brokerage. I was general counsel for a large brokerage. I myself am a huge investor in real estate, bought our first multifamily building in 2009, which felt like the world was falling apart and it was the perfect time to buy. And what I've done and I've been so fortunate to do is create this business that brings in all of these experiences that I've had over the last 10, 12, 13 years in these different assets of aspects of real estate and be able to bring that to my clients. So really what I do is I help people buy and sell commercial real estate, largely multifamily buildings. And I bring in that legal background, that expertise as a buyer and a principal to help advise my clients the way that I wanted to be advised along the way. So that is, in a nutshell, how uh, I would explain that uh, more complicated internet-based explanation, right, of what I do. No, and I love it. And that's helpful because a lot of our listeners are really coming to us for single family home perspective here in the South Bay. And what I want to emphasize to everyone listening is everything that you bring to the table is so amazing because you have that legal expertise. An agent like me, when we have a legal issue come up in an escrow, a transaction, I call you half the time as my legal counsel, where when Mm -hmm. people hire you to execute on their commercial properties, not only you, their broker, finding them great deals or getting them top dollar, but you also serve as a legal advisor. You bring it all into one place where most agents can't deliver that. Absolutely. And that's what sets you apart. And that also allows me to predict problems. So I think so much of what we do, both in the residential sphere and in the multifamily commercial sphere, 
is we predict problems so that a mile out I can tell well, this is going to be an issue with this property. I receive a title report and I see a problem or I know we have an easement issue between two pieces of land that are adjacent. I know that's going to be a problem. Or I get the due diligence packet, meaning I get all the leases, I get the estoppel certificates, I get all of these documents from the sellers on behalf of my buyer, and I see the problems a mile away. And what that allows me to do, and I know you do the same in residential because we've had this conversation so many times, it allows us to massage the issue along the way so that when the problem finally arises down the road, it doesn't exist anymore. And it allows us to prepare for the problems that we don't expect. The leak that you had no idea was going to come up during escrow or the tenant issue from in my circumstances, the tenant issue that you didn't anticipate in escrow or the financing uh, that being an issue. So all sorts of things that you aren't able to always predict. I think what the skill set is knowing the legal background, seeing what is going to arise allows us to solve those problems that we can predict really early. I love it. Yeah, so it's really fun. And it's been a really fun experience to join the two. There are circumstances where we still hire outside counsel for my clients. Of course. Especially in the very large transactions or if it's particularly hairy because I like to have another set of eyes on it. But what we do is I am able to be on those calls, ask a lot of questions, get things moving faster, I think, with the attorney on the other side or for my client because of the background. Love it. Yeah, it's really fun. Love it, love it, love it. And AIC is kind of a newer venture for you, not brand new, but it's just a culmination of over a decade of legal experience, residential experience, multifamily investing, all coming to a head now that your babies are are getting all grown up and now you can hit the ground running. So I want to get to that personal stuff later in the show so people can understand you as a South Bay resident and what draws you here. Mm -hmm. But I want to start with your expertise. I want to start with multifamily. You've been investing in multifamily real estate probably, well, like you said, since 2009. 2009. So basically, since you were out of USC and probably doing your UCLA law school, you were doing it then. You're a broker now. Why don't you give us a summary of the multifamily market now, and then we can kind of get into the details. Sure. So multifamily now is very different than if I were sitting here with you, Richard, six or eight months ago. We have seen a massive shift in the last six months in multifamily. I think similarly to the shift that you're seeing in residential. Multifamily is a little different than residential in a couple of ways. One is that we are intrinsically tied to the interest rates, where residential is, but you still have different buyer motivations. People still need to find a home. People may be okay paying a higher interest rate or paying a little bit more than they're anticipating because this is going to be their home for 20 years. And so, okay, I can make sense of paying this much more for this product in this market, right? Multifamily, it's dollars and cents. Does the property pencil? When we do our underwriting, meaning we look at a property, we take all of the numbers, we take all the financial information about the property, we take the location into consideration, we take the condition of the building into consideration, we take the rents, obviously, into consideration. All of those things, when they come together, when we're looking at a property, meaning underwriting it, we are so tied to those numbers. If those numbers don't make sense, then you don't buy the building. You don't invest in the building. Now, different people, different buyers have different underwriting criteria, meaning they need to get a different amount of money out of each property. Someone that's buying this great building here in Malaga Cove may be able to have the dollars and cents not make sense. They might be able to buy it and say, this is a legacy property. I have so much money that I don't need to make money off my money right away. So I'm going to go ahead and and throw a little extra at it because I want that building so badly. But most of the investors that I work with are mom and pop investors, individuals, your neighbors, the people you work with, who are using their savings to invest for income or for their future retirement or their children in the next generation. So our market is intrinsically tied to numbers. So with the interest rate hikes, what we have seen is, in my opinion, a massive price drop. Because in order to buy a building, for example, let's say it's a $5 million building, and you were underwriting it eight months ago at an interest rate of 3.5%, because commercial interest rates are lower 
typically than residential interest rates by about a percentage point, give or take. If you're underwriting at a $5 million property, you've got a certain amount of mortgage payment and that mortgage payment comes out of it and then you get your cash flow at the end. After expenses of the property, you gotta pay taxes, you gotta pay electrical bills, you gotta pay the gardener, and then you get cash out of it. That's your cash flow. Well, what's happening now with interest rates creeping over 6%, depending on the interest package you're getting in a, in a multifamily property, that cash flow is gone, just gone, because your monthly mortgage payment on this property has gone up so substantially. So what do you have to do? You have to buy the building for that much less in order for it to make sense. If you buy the building for less, you're borrowing less. You're putting less down. You're getting a higher return on your dollar if you're buying it for less. Well, that's really impacted prices. So we're seeing a huge shift in the market. I would say prices are dropping anywhere. Like visibly, the listings are dropping about 10%. People are doing mass price reductions, 10, sometimes 12% off the listing prices that were out there. Which is huge. Huge. You don't see that shift very often. Huge. But beyond that, what's visible is those are still not selling at those prices. So what I'm really seeing as far as a value drop in some of the multifamily sectors, at least in Southern California, is somewhere in that 15, 20, even potentially higher than that range. You're seeing 15 to 20% drops now. This yes. isn't a prediction in the future. You're seeing it right now. I am. And it depends too on, it's, it's all very intangible at times because when you're in a shifting market, you can't always tell where you're gonna land. And because this market is shifting out underneath us right now as we speak, it's changing week to week to week to week with elections, with political changes, with stock market ups, downs, dips. We're kind of on a little rise right now. It's changing week to week to week. And so where things end up landing is difficult to say, which is why there's a huge difference, right, between a 10% drop and a 20% drop. That's huge. And huge. I don't really know where it lands in that section because we haven't seen the properties selling and the comparables yet in order to say well, that's where that value is. Right. And it could be an overcorrection of you going, hey, maybe Absolutely. values are worth 10% less, but the buyers today, since again, most of our listeners being home purchasers or sellers, mm -hmm. it's, hey, I'm obsessed with this home. I want to make it my home. Yes. There's an emotional drive to buying yes. the home where with your investors, they may go, hey, the numbers only pencil 10% less, but oh, by the way, if rates go up another one or two percentage points, I'm going to want it 20% less. So let me just offer 20% less now mm -hmm. to protect myself in case there is that drop. And it almost just snowballs into a market that could be hit pretty hard, even if it's an unfair hit. Yes. So you're, are you seeing buyers come in even lower yes. than what some of these drops are for that? Yes. You are. So I'm seeing a price drop and then I'm seeing offers come in lower even than Even lower than those price drop costs. Yes. And how much lower is really what's yet to shake out because the money that's available in the market right now for investment, it's not completely clear where that's going to shake out. We had so many cash buyers in these last couple of years who come in, they've got tons of cash to spend. They go ahead and beat out the competition with fast closes, all cash over list, right? Mm -hmm. We remember this not too long ago. It was exhausting. <laughs> it was exhausting. It was fascinating, mm -hmm. right? And now we still have cash buyers. I still have buyers who are looking to put in cash into the market who are less impacted by interest rates because they're buying cash. The reason I say they're less, by the way, a little tangent, they're less impacted instead of not impacted is because we use interest rates to find values of property. Just because you're buying all cash doesn't mean you wanna spend way above market. And so interest rates to calculate it as if you were buying with financing is a good way to compare apples to apples. If I was buying this building with a loan, would I buy it at this price, even if you're buying all cash? So those cash buyers are still out there, but they're kind of, looking and waiting and seeing things shake out. And am I overpaying for this? Am I paying 5%, 10% too much because I'm all cash and I don't have to pay attention to interest rates? So we're in this kind of limbo with a lot of buyers. I'm sure you've heard it. I'm going to wait till next year. 
over yeah. and over again. Yeah. Every client, it seems. I'm going to wait, mm-hmm. see how it shakes out, see how next year goes. And we're seeing the same thing in multifamily. It's just there are still buyers out there. They're looking for deals. We just don't yet know what a deal is. Right. And you won't know. And does it seem like this shift in the market and Mm -hmm. 10, 15, 20% down that you are seeing or it looks like it's going to happen, is this purely interest rate driven? Is this purely a Fed move? No, no. No. So what what else is contributing people paying less? So a couple of things. One is financing is more difficult now. Anytime financing constricts, mm-hmm. it makes it more difficult to buy a building. So you have fewer buyers out in the market. Or the lenders are requiring more down. On the commercial side of multifamily, a lot of lenders required already 30 40%, 45% down. It's not the same as residential mm-hmm. where you've got Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac. Or FHA. FHA, VA loans, none mm-hmm. of that stuff. So if you're getting traditional financing on a multifamily building, five units or more, you're going to put substantially more down. Well, in this market, the financing component is more difficult. They want to make sure you have more experience. They might want you to put a little bit more down. They might be more conservative when they're underwriting the property. So financing is a little harder. That's one. Number two, well, the big one is interest rates. Interest rates, sure. So I'd say that's number one. Number two would be financing is a little tougher. Number three is rents are in this interesting flux, especially in California. Uh, Tell us about this. Okay, so what's happening with rents? Yeah, so government regulations have made things somewhat unpredictable for landlords in California when it comes to raising rents, when it comes to evicting tenants who are not paying or they're having other issues with the tenant who they can't get out of their property. And we think we have an idea where it might be headed, but so much of it is dependent on the political landscape. So the political landscape is that component that really changes values because just like the stock market, investor confidence in real estate values and your ability to manage a property is going to impact price. A lot of it has to do with confidence, right? Stock market, Mm -hmm. confidence, same thing in real estate. So the political landscape of regulations, eviction controls, rent controls, closing the courts down, the government buying apartment buildings and competing against governments when you're buying buildings, it's very difficult to do, right? Yes. Those things really impact the market and price also. And then the other thing is cash. So a lot of people are tighter on cash than they've been in the last two or three years. Stock market's down, speculative investments, crypto's down. All of that stuff. Mm -hmm. So all of the money, because most investors in real estate, let's say you're buying a $5 million building and you're putting 40% down, they're not holding, you know, two and a half million, $2 million in cash. It's invested typically in lower yield stock, something that's a little safer, but it's still invested. Because sitting on cash is not something that most investors tend to do Mm -hmm. unless they're preparing for an acquisition or anticipating something in the market. So that cash has lost value or that investment that they were going to use for their down payment has lost value. Or maybe their personal life has become more expensive because of inflation. We're all being hit by higher costs of living. So maybe there's less cash to invest. Someone said, I had $2 million. I wanted to go put it into a property. Let's go buy something. And now they say, well, actually, I've got about 1.5 or I've got 1.3. But that's going to change what you're buying. And that chops you're everything at. down. Everything starts to trickle. Well, so, okay. So we've got three big things. Yeah. We've got interest rates, which are huge, in my opinion, is, yeah. is the majority of this drive. But then as a result, banks get tighter on their lending. And then number three, and we've seen it coming for a while, California and especially certain progressive cities are tough on landlords when it comes to raising rents and evicting tenants if you can't get them out. It kind of sounds like, and I don't mean to be harsh here, it's kind of like the perfect storm of headwinds finally against the apartment market. Because the last 10 years, if you bought in 09, perfect timing when there was carnage in the market, And you just saw interest rates going down, 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 which supports apartment building values, if not hyperspeeds their growth. Mm -hmm. And now it looks like those tailwinds have all turned to major headwinds. Do you see it 
easing up in the future or is this the new normal where people need to consider that apartment buildings hmm. may not have the growth they've had in the past or maybe they'll plateau a little bit for a while until these things are worked out? Oh, I definitely think they'll plateau for a bit. But I am a firm believer in market cycles, as mm -hmm. I know you are too. And any 10-year cycle, you're going to see massive differences and massive change in the value of real estate, which is why I like real estate so much. I think now, for example, is mm -hmm. a fantastic buying opportunity. Fantastic. The problem with these buying opportunities is that you don't know they're good buying opportunities until you have the benefit of hindsight. Right. The second problem with these buying opportunities is nobody wants to buy right now. Everyone wants to wait. Everyone wants to see things shake out, which is why you know it's a fantastic buying opportunity. Because when everybody is buying, you are just pushing up values. Right. So do I think, and you didn't ask this question, but do I think now is ask a great yourself the question. buying yes. opportunity? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. Could it be as good as it is going to be in January? I don't know. Mm -hmm. Sure. I don't know. But it was better than six months but ago. But it's better than six months ago. Mm -hmm. And it'll probably be better than it will be in four or five years. And where is the bottom of the market? I don't know. When we bought our first building in 2009, it looked like the world was falling apart. The seller was trying to catch a falling knife. He was trying to get so much more out of this property than he could. He didn't realize the market was falling as quickly and as sharply as it was. I don't think we're in a 2009, by the way. But we had a buying opportunity. And I want to tell you, when we bought, we were sick about it. Like, sick. Every time we've bought a building, we've bought seven buildings now. Every time we've bought one, sick. Like, to my stomach. The last great purchase we bought was March of 2021, when COVID was looked like it was going to come back again with, you know, a third head. Sure. It looked like the government was going to shut us down again in evictions. And nobody wanted to buy these buildings because it was so uncertain. Everybody stopped. We bought. And six months later, we gained like a million dollars in value on these buildings. Because when nobody wants to buy, that is when you buy. Right. Right? Right. Now, where is it going to go from here? Is this the new normal? I don't know that we're going to see 3.5% interest rates again in our near future. Right, short term. Short term, relatively long term. It's just not a common interest rate. It was so low. Mm -hmm. We forget because we have, you know, short I'm memories. used to it for 20 years now. Yeah, but it's so low. Are we going to sit in that 5 6 7% range? My guess is, yeah, over the next 10 years, that'll probably be where we shake out. I'm hopeful it doesn't go much higher than that. But, you know, when our parents were buying homes, they were in the mid-teens, mm -hmm. the mid-teens. So I have no crystal ball. I don't know where it's going to go. And what I tell people who are buying is that so long as you are buying with the intention of holding and you finance it, and you act as though you're going to hold, meaning don't put short-term financing on there. Don't get an arm that readjusts after two years. You know, put financing on there that matches your investment mentality. You're fine. You'll be okay. Rents will continue to rise, albeit potentially slowly. Sometimes they dip before they rise again. Uh, values will continue to rise albeit slowly, sometimes they dip before they go up again. But if you are in it and you make a smart decision with the information you have at the time and it makes sense at the time, then you move forward. That's my opinion. And I think that is smart investing, is going, you buy something with the intention to hold it, yes. but then you try and go, hey, is this a good time to buy? And you take advantage of those opportunities. Yes. And if it was the great time to buy, then you get to ride it up. And if it wasn't, well, you were happy with the yield you're getting based on the purchase you yes. have today and you're in it for the long run. So let's say we buy this month, you buy an apartment building this month and you look at values because you're interested, you keep track of them and you look at the valuation in six months and it's gone down, let's say five, 7%, okay? In your head, oh man, I could have bought this for five or 7% less than I bought it for when I did. But in reality, and it's the same in the home market, right? In reality, is it impacting your life in any material way? No. Unless you're moving or selling or refinancing, 
you have a fixed rate. You can do that in multifamily too if you are concerned about interest rate fluctuations. Right. You can do things to make it so the market fluctuations really don't matter for your bottom line. And so you have the time to let the market shake out. I mean, you see this in residential, right? Of course, all the time. Yeah. And I, what's interesting is, and, and I want to just kind of push because we have home fans here mm-hmm. and it's it, maybe it's a little self-serving to me, but I'm telling you what I'm going to be doing, uh, calling clients into the next year. Yeah. But you also follow the home market as closely as you follow multifamily. Mm-hmm. And I don't want you to give the honest answer. Yeah. And it won't hurt with where I'm going with this. What do you think is going to be more resilient? Obviously, everything's getting hit by interest rates. Do you think housing prices here in the South Bay or multifamily prices here in the South Bay or whatever? Or is it not much of a difference? Do you think if you're seeing 10 to 20% drops in apartment buildings, are we gonna see that in the housing market here in the South Bay? I don't know because there's such a housing supply issue. You have a constriction. We have constriction in multifamily also. We're not able to really have a lot of multifamily development here in Southern California for mm-hmm. so many reasons. Right. So many rules, So high, such high construction costs limitations on low-income housing right. and what you have expensive to build. Expensive land. Expensive land. Sure. We have so many things stopping from building home, building apartment complexes in Southern California in populated areas, right? You can always go into undeveloped land. But in the residential housing world, you have such supply constriction and you've had it for so long that I don't know that it's going to get hit in the same exact way. They're not, I don't know, I don't quite know how to answer that question yeah. because it's difficult to see how exactly they're tied because rental units are connected to how available single family homes are mm-hmm. because if mm-hmm. people can purchase a single family home they tend to do that and if they're not able to they tend to rent and so there is it's all connected as i heard many times growing up the apartment bone is connected to the housing bone is connected <laughs> to the economic bone sure. they're, they're all deeply connected mm-hmm. but whether one's inverse to the other or one is linked equally to the other. I don't know exactly. Well, and the reason why I set you up for this is, let me give you my, my advice to a lot of clients that we have is I have clients who have held their home. They were Mm -hmm. able to buy a new home that they wanted, or they bought a condo and then they got married and had kids and moved somewhere and they kept the condo as a rental. Mm -hmm. And in my opinion, and I don't have any data to back this up, but I'm seeing softness in the income property market, just like you are. And I'm in the four units and below business where you're five plus units. And one of my predictions that I write at the beginning of every year, and and this is going to be one of them, is I think there's going to be opportunity income properties just as you're seeing now. And the clients who are renting out that condo or that single family home, my gut, at least from what I'm seeing, is is housing prices aren't falling as fast or they're resilient. And I think it's a nice time, even though we're not as hot, is sell that condo once the renter's out or sell that home and they qualify for a 1031 exchange and go into that duplex or triplex or if it's a more expensive condo or home, call you and go look at that 10 unit building because I think the homes that are rentals are going to stay a little bit more resilient than the the income property buildings. I feel like that's a nice trade and I'm going to be having meetings with clients with that. Do you agree on that notion? Or do you go, Richard, I think you're making a stretch here and trying to time it too much. So here's where I agree on the mm-hmm. notion, and here's where I'm not sure. Okay. Okay, so or I'm Or disagree. You can I disagree. Don't, I don't actually disagree. I would be happy. You know, I'm happy to disagree. But I don't actually disagree. I think, and again, this is all conjecture, all opinions, right? Yes. But I think that the biggest question is one you, you mentioned in your in what you talked about is what else would you do with the money? Mm-hmm. Okay. So if you're going, well, I'm going to just sell it, take the cash, pay the gains, and maybe I'll do my addition. Or maybe I'll buy that second home I've always wanted to buy in Big Bear because prices are a little depressed mm-hmm. from where they were mm-hmm. six or seven months ago. If that's the case, right, is now a great time to sell? No. If you're just going to take the money and run, mm-hmm. not a great time to sell, right? If, however, you're looking at saying, okay, I'm going to take that condo money or that single family home money that I'm using as income, and I am going to exchange it, as you mentioned, mm-hmm. into something larger, something that can produce more income, 
Now I think is a great time. It is a great opportunity to do that because it doesn't matter where you are in the market as long as you're buying and selling at the same time. People get in trouble. Buy high, sell high, or all yeah. that type of stuff Buy at the same high, time. sell high. Mm-hmm. Buy low, sell low. As long as you're not buying high and selling low, right? right then, then you'd shake out okay. And again, if you take a long-term perspective to it, then you have a lot of growth opportunities. There are generally, in my opinion, more growth opportunities for income properties in larger buildings than a single family home or a condo, 100%. period. And your rental's better. I mean, you can buy a million dollar triplex yes. and earn more rental income than you would on a million dollar single homes in most cases. Yes, and mm-hmm. your risk, in my opinion, is lower. Of course. Because if you lose a tenant in your condo, you have a 0% occupancy of right. 100% vacancy. If I have a four unit building and I lose a tenant, I have 75% occupancy, only a 25% vacancy. And rent decreases, you know, kind of get buoyed by other units that have long-term leases. So they're paying higher rents for those periods of time. You have more stability, in my opinion, the larger the building that you go for income properties. I agree. But I also recognize that Income properties are often outside of people's ability to pay. And comfort level. And comfort level. I got to manage four people calling Absolutely. Sometimes that's hard for people to wrap their heads. Absolutely. Management Mm -hmm. gets more intense. You kind of have to dig more into the numbers, understand the financing more, Mm -hmm. understand the underwriting more. It's a bit more of a project. And that's uncomfortable for some people. But if you're looking at it from a dollars and cents perspective, I agree completely. You sell the condo and the single family home that you're renting out in this market, and you go buy a triplex, a quad, I will tell you the, one of the things that I'm seeing the some of the larger price drops in are triplexes Triplex. and quads. Well, and I, because those pencil even less than yes. large scale apartment buildings, yes. and no one's gonna buy that for cash flow because now it's impossible, yes. and very few people who wanna buy a $3 million triplex you know, in the Manhattan Beach sand section, want to live in a two-bedroom income unit with shared walls with two other tenants. So you're right. They could go down. So we're of the same mind. As long as you 1031 exchange condos, single families into what you're doing, it's a no-brainer. Totally. But if you're selling to just take the cash and you want to get as much cash as possible, it's not the best market to do that. Right. And it's a different calculation. Yeah. Let's then shift gears of, you probably get a lot of questions Mm -hmm. about California versus out of state. Yes. What are you seeing? now as a broker, what are you doing now with your investors and the properties that you're investing and divesting? Yes. So that's probably the number one question I'm getting right now. The number two being, is now a good time to buy? Which is funny. When the first question is, should I buy in California? And then the second question is, should I buy at all? You'd think it'd be flip-flop. Right. Right. But that just shows you how nervous people are about California especially it's election day, midst of elections. Yes. All sorts of things have been happening in the last two or three years that as landlords, we didn't actually think were going to happen. We didn't think that almost overnight bills would pass, not allowing you to evict a tenant right. till the end of the year, except under this number of circumstances, right? We didn't think that California would just institute a form of rent control seemingly overnight. Now, it wasn't overnight, but it felt like it Mm -hmm. almost as a landlord. And where things are going from here with a lot of the regulations that have come down the pipeline, increased homelessness, you know, they just, the government, they just are turning one of the hotels on PCH, one of the old hotels into a homeless shelter within violation of certain zoning ordinances and Really feeling like you don't have as much control over your property as you would like, given how much money you invest in things. Now, the flip side of that, I recognize Mm -hmm. completely and appreciate is we have a crisis in California, in particular, of homelessness, of unaffordability. You talk a lot about. Big believer in that. Big of unaffordability. And we need more low-income housing. We need some kind of infrastructure in order to support people who have solid jobs, good jobs, and still can't afford to buy a home in in the cities near where they work. We have a problem, and we got to address that problem as a, a state, right? And local municipalities. But as just just from the investor perspective, so I'm just going to take the one perspective yes. for now. Just from the investor perspective, it's scary. It's your money. You want to have some kind of prediction about what's going to happen with it. 
you want to know that if I buy under these assumptions that, sure, there are things I can't control, but generally these assumptions will be true. Mm -hmm. In California, the regulations make it a little more difficult, right? So pros and cons of buying in California is always where I land as far as California versus somewhere else. So the first pro of California is California is a kick-ass place to live, right? So true. So true. That's why we live here. Why we live here. That's why we're sitting in this office. That's why we have businesses here. That's why our families are here. Mm -hmm. It is a great place to live. It has fantastic year-round weather. We have micro-economies all over the place. So we're not stuck living and working near downtown LA, right? The South Bay has a micro-economy. The Long Beach has a micro-economy. Orange County, parts of it have their own little micro-economies where you can find jobs, you can find homes, you can find schools, you can find food, you can find all sorts of things. And you don't have to live near massive cities like you do in many other places. We have economies that support small businesses much more so than other parts of the country. You go drive around parts of other states. I've done it with clients. I've done it in Ohio, for instance. Chain, this Mm -hmm. chain, that chain, this big law firm, that big law firm, this big accounting firm. You don't have the economy to create a lot of small businesses. You walk around Redondo Beach, almost everything's a small business. 100%. So there's a lot of opportunity in California for that. You can create the the American dream Mm -hmm. in California. So that's another thing that is, I don't think, going to change much about California. And the other thing about California, especially along the coast, which is where I specialize, I know you specialize, is you can't build more land. We are stuck Mm -hmm. next to this gorgeous blue ocean where you can't build that way, right? So you've cut your demographic almost in half of or your opportunity for more real estate in half by putting an ocean there. And so it means that values are going to stay buoyed to a large extent sure. because you just can't it's not like Vegas. You can't just like build more and go farther and add a new little city and add a new little city and put a little shopping center and you can't do that here. So California, the biggest pro that we have for California, and often it is the deciding factor for so many clients, myself included most much of the time, is it's just a great place to live and own property. And so you aren't short of renters. You aren't short of people to help service your building. You aren't short of opportunities to increase the value of your investment. That's the biggest thing California has going for it. Cons? There could be some cons. There could be a lot. There are cons, right? <laughs> cons, the regulatory environment is tough. That, that predictability that I mentioned. The other thing is the cash flows are terrible compared to a lot of other places. So hard when you first buy a building. So hard, mm-hmm. right? You've bought buildings and you had areas that were higher cash flow, but still. Still right? tough. Still tough. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So those areas, you can get more bang for your buck in a lot of other areas areas. Now, they don't always appreciate as well. So a lot of the decision is between appreciation and cash flow, but they'll still appreciate. So sometimes you get better returns out of state. Most of the time you get better returns out of state, depending on where you're going. Some other areas have almost come up to California rates, right? Right. But that's the biggest, those are the big two reasons I think people invest out of state is to increase their returns and to avoid some of the regulatory uncertainties. And are you seeing that shift? I feel like more people were choosing California over the last decade, and I could be completely wrong. This is why I'm asking. so interesting. And is it shifting now to out of state, or do I have that wrong? And it's now people going, I feel like California is safer to put my money in a shifting environment. That's a great question. And I can only really, you know, I don't study those statistics, Mm -hmm. and so I can only speak to experiences with clients. I think in the last five years, there was a massive push to go out of state. There was already. It already happened, which is what buoyed a lot of the Phoenix, Mark, Phoenix, Arizona, Denver, Colorado is like almost as unaffordable as as Mm -hmm. California at this point. Austin, Texas. Those out of parts of Tennessee that hit the radar of people like four years ago. Like everyone talks about Tennessee with apartment buildings. Boomed, right? Out of nowhere. Right. So that trend started and stayed really steady, in my opinion, in the last five, six years. And the problem is that those areas, when we do hit recession-type markets, 
they do drop more than our markets drop, which is interesting. It creates an opportunity right now to potentially sell some California real estate and diversify and take some of that and take advantage of some of the larger drops in those mm-hmm. out-of-state areas. And it's something that we're looking at too. We're doing a massive analysis of our portfolio and figuring out if we want to take a portion of it, not all of it, but a portion of it, because we still do believe in California real estate. Well, and you've been mostly a California investor. And exclusively, I mean, really greater LA for the most part, maybe a few out of the greater LA area. And so you're now compelled to start looking out of state. Yes. And we have been for years. It's just one of those times. So something interesting about commercial real estate for residential listeners is just if you're living a home and you decide you want to move and sell your home, you can. You can put it on the market, you sell it through escrow, your loan gets paid off, you get a new loan for your next house. It's not the same for commercial financing. You can't prepay a mortgage without massive penalties. So if you have a seven-year fixed loan and you get a, like a 60-day window to either pay off the loan or refinance, whatever you're going to do, because you refinance, you're basically paying it off and mm-hmm. redoing it, right? You have like a 60, 90-day window to do your financing unless you want to incur sometimes a prohibitively large penalty. So... If you are looking to sell a property, you want to check and you have commercial financing on it. You want to check and make sure you have the ability to do so without having to pay half a million dollars in in loan penalties. Real money. Right. Mm -hmm. So for us in our portfolio, we're kind of at this interesting point where there are a couple properties we're either going to need to refinance or you can sell and move out of state. And that's where sometimes the financing tail wags the dog for exchanges. So that's one of the reasons why why now mm-hmm. is because every seven to 10 years, we get an opportunity to have the discussion. So out of state, here's the biggest issue with out of state. And you can solve it if you know an area well. The biggest issue with out of state is you got to know the area. You got to learn the area. You got to become an expert in the area. Let's take the South Bay, for example. Pretend California is a fantastic place, right? Nothing but cash flow, no government regulation. <laughs> oh, Inve- back in the day, maybe. <laughs> Investors are like, California, we all want to go to California. Right. And you see a building on Avenue I, address Redondo Beach. And you're like, oh, that's so expensive. I can buy this other building on Artesia Boulevard. Same unit mix, looks like a great building. I can get it for 5% less. I'm going to buy that because... From a dollars and cents perspective, it makes sense. Right. What you don't know, Artesia's a great uh, street, by the way. I'm not knocking Artesia. Of course But what you don't actually know is Avenue I and Artesia and North Redondo are not the same. They might both be Redondo Beach, but they're not the same. And so you don't know if you're overpaying for a property based on the location. You also don't know if you're on the right side of the street. You don't know if... You got to learn, does that state have any specific regulations on real estate? I've had investors go into states where they don't realize there's a massive sales tax on the sale of real estate because they don't have it in their city or their state. So the biggest barrier, in my opinion, to investing out of state is you got to know the area you're buying in really well. Drive it. Spend a couple of days Boots on the ground. Boots on Mm -hmm. the ground. Get to know the street by street because it matters. It's just like buying a home. You're not just going to say, oh, Avenue I versus RT. You're going to go visit those open houses or go tour it with your agent. You got to do the same due diligence with apartment buildings. It's not like you just read a stock perspective Mm -mm. from the S&P. You've got to go and do more when it comes to real estate. Go check out the local grocery store. Where are my tenants? Because you got to think about the tenants. That's really who your client is, right? Where, Where are my tenants eating? Where are they working? Where are their kids going to school? What's the police department like in this area? Do we have car thefts? Do we, you really want to dig in? Are we dependent on one hospital for all our jobs? That's not good. What if that hospital has problems? Or, you know, all of those things, you got to learn it out of state. So it's not as easy as just picking up an offering memorandum and going, oh, that's awesome. 7% returns. I'm going to go. I'll take it. I'll take it. Go (laughs) buy a building in Surprise, Arizona, right? right? You got to (laughs) really figure it out. So that's the out of state. 
I mean, what are you seeing? You've got properties in. People look at it going, we have listings in Inglewood right now. And we were able to sell one kind of at the top before this interest rate shift. And that client is going, hey, I'd like to go out of state. Mm -hmm. I'm okay selling Inglewood a little bit at a discount today because I'm getting a bigger discount out of state and higher cash flow. Yes. But they're also, they've owned those properties for eight years now, so they're also happy to keep it. It's a lot different of a mentality than home sales because if you go, hey, I've got to sell my home because I need it sold to buy my next house or I'm moving, I've already bought my home, I can't rent this in cash flow or I don't want to have to worry about this home, people can go, well, I already have big cash flow on my building I've owned for 10 years. I'm just going to keep it. So it's much more of a professional type environment. You know that, but for our listeners is that there's less emotion and there's less levers that force people to sell in your business. But at the same time, there's still people who may inherit a property and go, I don't want to deal with this 20 unit building. Let's sell. I don't care. Or there's a death or there's a divorce or there's something needs to get divided up. Those Mm -hmm. are the sellers that ultimately create those lower comps in in your environment. Absolutely. Or they're just, they're motivated for different reasons. Investor motivations are very different than residential motivations for the most part, right? You, for residents, you're looking at the home you're going to live in. You're looking to see if you do have children or or pets, is this space going to work for us? Do we have enough bedrooms? Is the kitchen located in the right spot? Do I have that indoor-outdoor feel I've always wanted? All of those things, right? You're looking for yourself to live there. When you're walking through an apartment building, what you're thinking is, what does my renter want? And is this building going to provide what I need it to provide for the renters so that I can make money? That is the reason people buy investment properties, same reason people buy stocks, bonds, whatever you're going to buy with your money is to make money. And so not to live your life in that building. Mm-hmm. And so the perspective is very different. I want to talk about your perspective. I know we've got a little bit more time here, but I want to hear about your perspective because you are South Bay through and through for the yes. most part. You've decided to raise your family here in the South Bay. Most of our listeners are home buyers and home sellers, but they are the beginning first time investors in real estate. And so they come to me for duplex, triplex, fourplex advice because that falls under residential. And then as they do that, they step up their game and they call you. They're probably even calling you for triplex, duplex advice as well. But if you could give advice to people who are first-time investors, how they get started. And also I go, I like hearing your story a little bit about what you did and what was successful for you because you go, hey, I started in 2009 and i know you bought a duplex as your first home almost we turned it you into turned a it into a duplex yeah. and then you went in you but so what advice would you would you have for some of these first-time investors of going yeah. where do you start whether you're early in your career in yep. your 20s like you or even if you're in your 40s well, not in my 20s anymore just well, to well, back, back when you started <laughs> yes. back when you started in your 20s how would you advise people in the south bay here to get started and or how to, to absolutely to, to work on investment properties that's a great time? question and the answer is i'm going to make it really easy and then make it more difficult okay the answer is get started get started don't wait What are you waiting for? The Mm -hmm. more you wait, the harder it gets. So my first answer is just get started. Pull the trigger, ask the questions, meet the people, talk to you about that duplex, talk to me about that fiveplex, whatever you're going to do. Get started, okay? Because it's going to, by the time you decided to get started and the time you probably buy your first property, there's going to be a long period of time between the two. There's Mm -hmm. an education that needs to take place there and a comfort level that you don't always get to, but you eventually do, right? Right. So get started mm-hmm. is my number one piece of advice. The more complicated answer is it depends on what amount of money you have to invest. So if you have this much amount of money, you're going to be limited to these types of properties. Mm-hmm. If you have this much amount of money, then you have other properties that you can purchase. And by the way, I'm a huge proponent of multifamily, but I've helped people because I have my law background. I have a little bit I have a more a, a greater understanding of all the different types of transactions. Buy a small industrial building or buy a small office building or mixed-use building. So those are other opportunities out there depending on what you are trying to accomplish. But let's say you have a nest egg you've saved and you want to buy uh, your first investment property. The first question I have is, do you currently own your home? If you don't, go buy a triplex. 
if your family is in a position where they can buy a triplex and live in one of the units instead of buying a standalone single family home, if you can make that sacrifice that that requires, which mm-hmm. is having neighbors, living next to tenants, sharing walls, if you are willing to make that sacrifice, do it. Because it is the number one way I know almost all real estate investors have started is that with their own home, we did it with our duplex. We bought a tiny little craftsman home with an FHA loan in 2010. Yes, And it was 850 square feet. It was a short sale. We bought it. We were looking exclusively for buildings that we could improve. It's a single family home, but on an R2 lot in Old Torrance. And we lived there. We updated that house, 850 square feet. It was like two rooms, literally two rooms. And we then saved. And then a year and a half, two years later, we started construction on the back unit. And we built it into a duplex. And then we moved into the back unit because it was nicer than our front (laughs) unit. And we had a kid. And then we eventually sold the whole thing and Mm -hmm. did the same thing over in Redondo Beach. Love it. Yes. We bought a property with my brother. Knocked it down, built two on a lot. And we have a unique ability because my husband is a contractor. So I have a little more construction ability in our family. But you can find contractors. But I will say it took a lot of sacrifice to continue to bootstrap one property into the other into the other. My friends at the time were getting really nice condos in Hermosa Beach mm-hmm. or really nice condos in Redondo Beach. And or renting. Or renting. Like I was renting. by Pier Avenue in Hermosa Beach. Right. <laughs> renting really cool apartments. Uh-huh. And I didn't really make much great. sacrifice back then. Right. Mm-hmm. And we made pretty big sacrifices. Not, I mean, many people make way larger sacrifices. Of but for the position we were in financially at the time, we were making sacrifices in order to continue to build it. So that is one thing is if you are buying a first time, if you're a first time home buyer and you are willing to make, and you can buy a single family home, you have enough capital, buy a triplex instead and live in one and rent out the others, get to understand the landlord tenant rules, figure out how to be a landlord, what it takes to rent a unit, walking people through, Mm -hmm. maintaining it, dealing with issues when one of them leaves their sweaty hockey gear out on the balcony and they're not supposed to, figure out how to deal with that stuff. And then for those who are already in homes and have cash to invest in real estate, there are a couple of ways you can do it. You can find an investment group and invest your money with them. That's what we do. That's how we buy buildings. We syndicate them with family and friends. So you can find an investment group and say, I've got $100,000, $200,000, $300,000, which isn't enough to buy a building. So you invest with the group that as a whole then buys a building. That's very passive. To be active, you go and buy, start with a duplex, a triplex or a quad. And if you have the ability to do five, six, seven, eight units, go for it. But no, your learning curve is going to be like this. Yes, huge. 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 So the larger you start, the steeper your learning curve. And you got to make sure if you don't have experience in the landlord-tenant arena, that you have enough buffer financially, cash buffer, in order to make mistakes. But start. That's it. Get started. Start. I say that too, and I'm I'm kind of leaning over and looking over at Sergio, our amazing associate here, so who everyone sees on Instagram. We've had those conversations with Sergio going, I wish I got started mm-hmm. earlier. I was a believer of going, hey, I can rent. That's fine. Let's buy income properties. And I got started a little bit later doing that. But mm-hmm. I'm going, hey, go buy that duplex. Go buy that triplex. And it almost feels like maybe it's not 2010 juicy of a deal. Right. But 2023 looks like it could be maybe the next best opportunity to buy if the timing. And it could get worse. It could get better. Buy but now. it's a nice time to buy now and get started. And then you've traded from Old Torrance, which we love Old Torrance for clients, then into Redondo, North Redondo more specifically, and then into Palos Verdes. Yeah, and then within Palos. And you made the sacrifice and it worked. And within Palos Verdes, absolutely. And I even go, I posted something on Instagram about going, buy the duplex, buy the triplex. And someone went, Richard, if you want to put down that low down payment, you can't buy by the beach. And that's not practical for families or people with children. And I'm like, well, "Well, yeah, I go, that's maybe for you commentator, but if you're willing to make the sacrifice for a few years and then make it just how it gets you started yes. and that head start and then being able to trade is just such a massive advantage. Huge. I love that advice. Huge. It's get started. And it's whether you're 22 years old, straight out of college or 40. 
Yes. I say you do that. Yes. And then I love what you said with finding a syndicate group because so many people don't know mm-hmm. that you don't have to save up a bunch of money to buy a 20-unit apartment building. Right. There are people that raise money here locally. You're one of them yep. that know the market probably better than the investor. You yep. go and interview that person if they're in your community and they, they're they great people and they contribute to the schools or they volunteer or whatnot. Mm-hmm. That's part of your due diligence. You put $100,000 in a fund yep. and you own a part of a 20-unit Redondo Beach building yep. or someplace in Torrance or you're trading into Texas or Austin or wherever you guys are going. Yes. And so it's really just get started then investing in an apartment fund with someone Absolutely. like you. Absolutely. We do it with only family and friends. We're mm-hmm. not. It's not our primary business because we do it as a way to help ourselves invest, Mm -hmm. allows us to purchase larger buildings with better numbers and also bring family and friends along with us, which is really fun for us. And there are other groups that advertise for it. And Mm -hmm. the difference I think is that we are not fee churners because it's our investment too. We are usually the heaviest invested, the heavy, most heavily invested. And for people that don't know, fee churners, there are people who raise money to buy apartment buildings, but make very large fees for doing everything, which which I'm not saying that it's a lot of work, but when you are the lead investor on it and you're not in it for the fees, you're in it for the investment. That's a really powerful And for the folks who do it as a career, more power to you if they're getting the returns to the investors that are needed, then it doesn't, who cares how much someone is making if they're making you the money that you're hoping to make, right? But- Yes, get started. Buy the duplex. Yes. All right. Buy the duplex. I love it. And oh. I don't know about waiting for 2023. Honestly, I know you, we're you already- You feel good about right now is even a nice time. I think now is an opportunity to write offers. When we bought our first building and our first house in 20, 2009 and 2010, we probably wrote, gosh, dozens of offers. And we weren't overzealous about- grabbing one, right? Mm -hmm. If the seller wasn't game, we didn't do it. But when you start in this kind of market, just writing offers on properties at dollar amounts, that just makes sense for you at that time. Mm -hmm. And you can make those mortgage payments and you have confidence that you can make those payments going forward. Don't worry about what the seller thinks or what they're asking. Don't worry about what the seller's Mm -hmm. asking. Let the seller say no if it doesn't work for them. This is the market to do that in. This is the market to test those sellers and see where they're willing to land. And if they're not willing to land where you're willing to land, you move on. And that's the difference with income properties, right? right? Start making offers now where they pencil. And if you pick up the deal tomorrow, do it. Do it. And if if writing and you're still writing offers and it happens in four months or five months. And reevaluate, right? Maybe right. that seller comes back to you in four or five months and says, okay, we're willing to take that offer you wrote four or five months ago. Might not be your offer anymore. Right. The market's shifted. But again, if you're getting fixed financing in this kind of environment and it pencils with that financing, you got a lot of running room. However long your financing is fixed, that's your running room. That's huge. So you do it. I love it. Okay, so I kind of want to wrap this episode. And we're going to have you back, Mel, because I'm like, we just scratched <laughs> I talk the surface. Too much. I'm sorry. No, you don't. This is amazing information. <laughs> you get me on I'm real estate and, and learning. I just go. When we can talk about real estate law, we can yeah. talk about commercial, we can talk about residential. We'll have you back on the show because I think you'll be able to connect with our listeners a sure. lot more. But opinions on, you know, short term and let's keep it to South Bay. And it doesn't matter if you're talking about homes or apartment buildings, which you know both of them very well. Short term and long term. That's what I want you to kind of answer. Yeah. Short term, what are your feelings? You still feel good about this market. Long term, I feel like I know what you're going to say, but give people an idea of your short term feeling on this market. Long term, you can make it. And then can you go next? I'll go next. Sure. Absolutely. All right. So short term, I think the market's junky. I think that it's unpredictable. I think that it's confusing and confused. I think that buyers and sellers don't quite know which way is up. I think lenders are trying to find their footing. I think the government is trying to find their footing. It is a funky short-term market, no question. It's a little scary. It's a little exciting. It's all the feelings. All the feelings to me are coming in to play in the short-term market. Why I don't care though is because of the long-term market. So in my opinion, the long-term market is fine. It may not be the best market you've ever seen in the last hundred years. It may not be the massive growth we saw over the last decade, 
but in the long term, it's fine mm-hmm. if you are in potentially great, right? But what's your alternative with your money? That's where I always come back to. If I have this nest egg that I have been saving and I want to invest and I don't need to see the cash from it until I'm retiring or paying for kids college, you know, decade, 20 years from now, whatever it is, or even I'm in retirement and I'm looking for some cash flow, what's your alternative? How much more predictable is the stock market? How much more predictable is, you know, investing in something else? Mm -hmm. And so long-term, History has shown, my own experience has shown, my mentors, their experience has shown that we're fine. So the short term, I think super funky, weird, hairy, strange things happening in the market. And anyone who's in real estate, I think, is experiencing mm-hmm. those strange Absolutely. things. But long term makes it so I don't much care. Love That's it. my answer. That's a great answer. Yeah. I love the answer. And yours is definitely more of an, uh, it's an apartment answer yes. where my answer will be more home. Yes. But, and I kind of gave away what I'm going to be advising clients. I go, I think there's going to be opportunity in your world. And you already are saying there's opportunity 10 to 20%. Yes. And that's larger apartment buildings. My clients, I go, I think it's going to be hairy, weird in the housing market as well. And I go, hey, but I do think it will be more resilient because there's a lot of people who go, why am I going to sell with a 3% interest rate on my home? What else is there to buy? Well, with a 6 or 7% interest rate, there's nothing there. But I go, I think it's more resilient because housing, you've got millennials forming family. They're starting to really come into their careers. And I go, there's going to be that demand for housing with low inventory. I go, if you can sell that condo or house that you've owned and traded into income property. I love that. And for me, I hate predicting interest rates because every time I do, I'm wrong. Like it's impossible to predict interest rates. But if we all believe that interest rates will be elevated, and, and what do we mean by elevated? Higher than they've been the last few years. I do think apartment buildings continue to struggle. Mm-hmm. And so I think 2023 is a great time to trade in. Yeah. And for clients, I'm like, income properties, I think, are where it's at. That's a, you've got to be so excited to be in I your am. business where homes, I don't think anyone's going to be buying or selling much unless they own it as an yeah. investment. Yeah, it's a great opportunity to buy apartment buildings, in my opinion. One thing I completely agree, by the way, mm-hmm. and you asked me earlier, and I hadn't quite come to an opinion, but I think it's very convincing what you're talking about, which is I do think the housing market may stay a little bit more steady mm-hmm. because we talked about earlier, or at least I did, because I'm talking too much, but I guess it's a podcast. It's a podcast you talk. need to talk. So is the supply constriction. In residential, it comes back to financing. In residential, you have 30-year fixed mortgages. Mm-hmm. Your payment, buying a home, will stay the same for 30 years if you don't sell or refinance. That's huge stability. And by the end of those 30 years, you don't have a mortgage anymore, right? You're paid off. It's amortizing over 30 years. So it's not like you have a massive expense at the end of those 30 years. Apartments, it's so different in the financing world, over four units, right? So different. You have three, five, seven-year fixed. Very rarely do you get 10-year fixed rates. And they amortize over 30 often. So at the end of your fixed period, you haven't paid off your mortgage. You've paid just a lot of money in interest, right? And there are other financing opportunities. You have adjustables, interest only. You've got a lot of different financing uh, mechanisms in commercial. And so every time that property comes up for refi, you are considering, should I sell? And you're underwriting other opportunities and exchange opportunities. And that financing tail can wag the apartment dog in a way that would keep, that might make people sell, mm-hmm. might keep people in their homes, which constricts supply, which means your prices stay elevated. And the homes restrict the supply. I mean, I have clients mm-hmm. now who their dream home has come up down the street and they go, well, our interest rates at 3% and even trading up a half a million dollars, they've done well, they've saved, they go, the 7% rate or the six, probably more like 6% right. rate, they go, we can't afford it because right. our payment would be even higher on our normal house. Whereas in commercial, there's to. that opportunity for more supply to come mm-hmm. on the market right. as opposed to housing. So, but I'm with you long-term, man, I look back five years ago, seven, 10 yeah. years ago, man, if I had 
sprung to sacrifice and buy those units in old torrents, yeah. how much farther along I would be. And it's just people getting started in it, whether started. in good or bad markets. And if you're four units or under, you fix that debt for the long term. And if you're with the great investors like you, you're buying great buildings that mm-hmm. cash flow the numbers pencil, and then you're nimble in five yes. to seven years whenever your debt expires. And the key is, and I don't want people to just go out and buy buildings because mm-hmm. that is not at all. No, 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 no. <laughs> not at all what I am suggesting. It has to pencil. They have to make sense for today's numbers, today's financing. They have to pencil. So you got to be smart about how you're acquiring properties. And if you don't know how to pencil the numbers or mm-hmm. you're a rookie and the smarts aren't there yet, they call you. Yes, you find someone who can you help you. you do the numbers for them with yes. all of your best because there's so many commercial brokers that don't, don't own any property Almost none of them have your legal background. Yeah. They should call you and you'll walk them through the numbers, which Absolutely. leads me to if someone's looking at buying a building, mm-hmm. five units plus, four units, whatever, or looking at an apartment fund and you maybe have uh, friends and family that uh, are, are close to Melanie and you can weasel your way into one of those funds, how do our listeners contact you for more information? Do you have emails, phone numbers, yes, yes, Instagram yes. handles, yes, podcasts? <laughs> My Instagram, I'm not as good as you, Richard. You're so good at this stuff. I am developing that skill set because where my head is is always just in the numbers, in the process. As you should be. So email me or call me. My phone number is 310-480-8117. And my email address is marcher at investaic.com. So best way to reach me. And you can get all the information on the website. Just Google Melanie Archer, Melanie Archer. And, and, and type in investment properties. Investment. Your website will pop up or you can DM us or call us and yeah. we'll give you Melanie's number. Well, Melanie, we're going to have you back because we just so scratched fun. the service. This was a blast. Yeah. Thank you for joining us. Of course. And go out there and make some amazing apartment deals. Excited. All righty. Thanks, Richard. Take care.